Welcome to Shift with CJ. I'm your host CJ and together we will explore the areas of health, human performance, biohacking, psychology and much more that will inspire you to become the best version of yourself. When was the last time your doctor told you to eat more meat? Probably never. And you must be thinking, why would some kind of a doctor tell you that? Turns out what we have been made to believe for the past 100 years isn't completely clear. And today, I've got you someone special on the show to challenge some of those common misbeliefs that we have spread throughout the world. Today on the podcast, I have an orthopedic surgeon, a athlete, a public speaker, a author, a consultant, a podcast host, an entrepreneur. Sean Baker, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to get a chance to speak to your audience. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while now. And you're a doctor. And for sure, you did not learn how to be carnivore or follow the carnivore diet in med school. Am I correct? Why did you decide to ignore this um, nutritional advice for the past 100 years and in some way decide to piss some people off? Is it because you're really tall and muscular or maybe you've been an athlete? <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't choose to eat food in, in, intentionally to make people mad. Although some people seem to be mad about what I eat. Uh, you know, as a physician, you know, I've got several decades practicing as a physician. You know, nutrition was never something that, you know, we really learned, particularly as an orthopedic surgeon. Nutrition is very, has a very limited role in your practice. I mean, the only sort of uh, time you actually think about is if you have a patient who's malnourished and you know they're not going to heal very well. But beyond that, you don't really think much about nutrition. And so I came to uh, nutrition for simply the purpose of my own health. And as I, as you mentioned, I've been an athlete my whole life and I'm still an athlete, still compete. Um, I found that after I got about 42, 43 years in, I uh, see my health starting to decline. and this, despite the fact that I was still training very aggressively and, and exercising very regularly. And so I started playing with different dietary strategies. And I, you know, I kept experimenting and seeing which gave me the, the objectively and subjectively the best results. And ultimately, uh, after about well, seven or eight years of trying different diets, I kind of stumbled across a, a group of people that were doing this all meat diet, which I thought was patently abs absurd, quite honestly, when I first heard of it. But it was, it was compelling enough for me to just try it you know i was open-minded enough to try it and uh when i did i was quite surprised at how well i felt how well i performed and how the lingering sort of chronic health issues that i've been dealing with kind of resolved and so that uh to me was very curious and i wanted to learn more about it so i i, I kind of uh, spent you know a lot of time researching learning about this and then and then for whatever reason i inspired some other people to try it and now we have a community of tens if not hundreds of thousands of people that have now experienced this and and like me have seen remarkable improvements in their health uh you know this obviously goes against most of the nutritional dogma that we've been sort of at. um and i think the reason for that is we just don't have any data on on what a meat-based diet looks like. I mean, most people will conflate 
a Western diet, a standard Western diet or standard American diet, if you will, uh, which contains, yes, it contains some meat in it, but it also contains an incredibly high amount of ultra processed food, uh, sugars, fine grains, you know, these, these industrial oils that have been added to our foods, all the preserved, those artificial and natural flavorings and multiple, you know, buyers and gums and thickeners and all these things that we're probably not well designed to deal with. Whereas meat we've been eating for as long as we've been human beings. I mean, we can go back and look into the, you know, the historical texts, religious texts, and see references to meat eating. And if you believe in an evolutionary theory, then we've got evidence showing that humans have been eating meat for as long as we've been humans, you know, which is about 3 million years, going back to Homo habilis. And certainly Homo sapiens, which go back 300,000 years, have been always eating meat. So, um, you know, I... I been open-minded enough to, to look at the results. Uh, you know, people will complain that there's no data on this diet, and therefore it must be a bad diet. However, the the good news is we've got data that's coming out. In fact, Harvard University is about to publish a study on, on about 2,000 people that are doing this diet for six months or more, and they've got one person in the study that's been doing it for over 28 years. I've been doing it for five years, and I uh, can continue to thrive on this. And the results of that study show that, for instance, with diabetics, 92% uh, of the people came completely off insulin. 100% of the people came off all other injectable medication diabetes. 84% of the people were able to quit all, all oral medications, including things like metformin, which is a very commonly prescribed drug. You know, the inflammation marker went, went down. Uh, signs of heart disease regressed. Blood pressure normalized. Weight Weight loss improved, triglycerides improved. All these great improvements are seen. So I think uh, our beliefs around nutrition are based upon uh, what we call a lot of what we call nutritional epidemiology, which is basically just survey data. You know, you, what, do you, what do you think you remember you ate for last year? It's called a food frequency questionnaire, which basically they'll they'll give you a, a, a twenty page booklet of things you think you you remember you ate, and you try to do the best you can to try to remember what you ate over the last six months or a year, and, and no, no one can do that accurately. And data that they utilize is clearly uh, inaccurate at best, and many people will often embellish how much fruits and vegetables they eat and, and, and undercount other foods, and so it's it's not very good data, and, and they're trying to make proposals on this. And so my um, my belief, and I think it's a well-justified belief, is that we don't have good data on what diet makes us live longer or not have heart disease or cancer. Um, but we can certainly gauge when we're sick and when we're not sick. And we can we can see that within relatively short order. You know, we can be a diabetic with a hemoglobin A1C of 12 one day, and then three months later, we can have normal blood glucose and not require medication. That's clearly demonstrable. And if we can continue to do that, that should be our goal and not trying to project, well, we don't think you should eat this because I think you're going to get cancer in 20 years because we don't really know that and we have no way of really knowing that. Uh, so I think it's, a, it's just a shift in, in the mindset of what we think we actually can know and, and what we should be, what our goals should be, which I think should be taking on healthy people, making them healthy and not trying to be concerned about if they're going to have a heart attack in 20 or 30 years. Thanks for sharing that. And one of the things that is coming up right now, as you say, a lot of people have got the awareness about carnivore and 
you have been one of the leading voices in this community. So thank you for spreading the word and information with your book, your research. But do you think everyone's getting better eating only meat? Or is it because they're getting out some of the problematic vegetables or fruits out? Because one of the things I kept hearing when I was growing up, and certainly others around me as well, and probably a few generations before that, that eat your veggies, even if you don't like them, because they're good for you. But then some of the data that you've shared when you rewind a couple of hundred years ago, vegetables weren't really common in all parts of the world because A, they were very seasonal, and B, we did not have things like Amazon, which could deliver your vegetables to you, like, you know, in like an hour or two. But what changed? When in history did all of this vegetables become good for us? Yeah, so I think that first of all, I'd, I'd like to say that, you know, some people are going to find eating fruits and vegetables, and I don't necessarily think they're inherently bad people. I don't think all people need to eliminate them. I think what we're seeing in the context of the carnivore diet is an elimination diet. I think meat is probably the most well tolerated food substance that we have. Honestly, it's a superfood. It's got tremendous amount of nutrition. It is really well tolerated by the vast majority of people. Uh, but I think, you know, when we look at the creation of the, the field of nutrition science, you know, the, the American Dietetics Association was created back in 1917. And it was largely founded by a group of dietitians at the time who were uh, members of what's called the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is, as part of its principal guides, are vegetarian. They're very vegetarian-based. And so they have this belief from the very outset nutrition that meat was somehow evil it created lust and and you know these sinful thoughts and therefore it should be it should be banished from the diet and so this is what this is the framework from which nutrition science was was created that has been um you know kind of the undercurrent ever since there are a lot of people that go into nutrition that have these religious convictions and they don't necessarily declare them or, or even feel that they are it's necessary to declare them as conflicts of interest when uh, clearly, that bias shows through in, in what they believe in their in their in their research. Um, you know, we've got clear evidence from societies around the world, uh, whether those are the circumpolar populations like Inuit or the, the Sami in, in northern Finland and Russia, and the Nene and the, the, the Nilotic African tribes like the like the Maasai and the Dinka, and the, the Mongolian tribes, and the uh, you know the Gauchos in South America, and so on and so forth. These populations were largely free of chronic disease, had good quality of life, and they lived on essentially meat-based diets. I mean, they may have had some seasonal berries and occasional things beyond that, but generally they were eating a pretty meat-heavy diet, and they did very, very well. In fact, uh, if you, and I would challenge any of your listeners to do this, just look at Hong Kong and, and Google Hong Kong's life expectancy. And what you'll find, you know, is, is it'll be, you know, Hong Kong has the highest, highest life expectancy in the, in the world. For the last two or three years in a row, and then go on and look at Hong Kong meat consumption, and what you'll see is Hong Kong eats more meat than anyone else in the world. They the wow. person eats something like 700 grams of, of meat per day, uh, which is about a pound and a half, which is far more than the so. For instance, the average American, uh, and we're supposed to eat a lot of beef, eats around a day, which is not very much. I mean, a two ounce serving is a is, is a. I mean, I, I mean, I. You know, twenty times that much for breakfast today. Yeah, you'd probably <laughs> have more than that in one meal. 
Yeah, well, I do. I mean, I eat, I, I, you know, I literally eat probably 25 times the national average of beef. Uh, and if it were something that were the worst food in the world, then I, I probably should be dead. But instead, I'm lean. I'm athletic. I'm, you know, I've got, because my health is, is, is ideal. Uh, I mean, I, you'd be hard pressed to find too many, you know, guys that are 55 years of age that, you know, are as physically active and fit as I am. And uh, uh, so, I mean, I think it's something that we just, we just got it wrong. wrong. And, and I think that uh, we uh, wake up to that. There is unfortunately a great deal of interest in feeding you highly processed food. And, you know, it's, it's very profitable for them to convince you that meat is bad for you or bad for the environment. And therefore you'll want to give it up and then eat their highly processed food, which they make at a tremendous profit. You know, they're gonna, they're, they've got cheap ingredients. Uh, they can scale it very easily. They don't have the headache and, and hassle of dealing with ranchers and farmers. And, you know, they make it all in a factory and they can tell you it's the best thing for you. But I think time and time again, we see where, where uh, when we uh, try and mess with our diet through, through lab creations, it, always seems to go worse. I mean, I think that one only has to look back at margarine to see the, the you know, and, and, and yet there are still people that promote the health benefits of margarine. But I think at this point, most people are aware that margarine has been a disaster uh, for, for health. Uh, and, and, and I think the same thing we're going to see with these plant-based these plant-based fake meat analogs that we've got coming. Yeah, I was going to say the Impossible Burger. It's one of those plant-based fake meat burgers that everyone, every restaurant has just been putting up on their menus now. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, the marketing, because I've got a friend who is an executive at one of these uh, large hamburger places, you know, very upscale hamburger place. And he said that Impossible Burger paid them several million dollars to put that on their menu, um, you know, just to kind of, it wasn't by demand, it wasn't by popular demand, it was by the corporate com company creating the market and that's what we're doing here we're having uh you know the companies paying influencers and celebrities to say how great this product is and trying to create the market where there really wasn't a demand for that and i mean it's you know to some degree it's working i mean if we look at the meat industry it's the meat industry is, is something like a uh you know i think it's about a 1.3 trillion dollar a year worldwide and you know they want to capture you you know, 20% of that market. So that's, a, you know, that becomes a, a, you know, $250 billion a year market. And so there's a lot of money going into this. And, and, and believe it or not, some corporations are, can sometimes be unethical and they can be greedy. <laughs> They're willing to uh, do and say things that, 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 that may not necessarily be grounded in truth or, or, or not in the full truth. And so that's what we're seeing a lot of with, with this plant-based push lately. A few years ago, I've been, I guess, doing following a ketogenic protocol for the last five years. And about two years ago, when the pandemic first hit and most of us couldn't have access to a gym, like a formal gym, and uh, most of the options of food were just takeaways and things, especially here in Dubai, I decided to give the carnivore diet a try. That was my first attempt at it. I did it for a month. And because I was already able to burn my own fat as a fuel source it i didn't go through the whole flu and i it, i eased into it very easily but then one of the thoughts that always would cross my mind was that 
as is the meat that I'm eating, maybe that's not cross-fest and that's not cross-finish. And a lot of people that I know have this dilemma. And, you know, now that we've had so many health influencers been talking about the importance of grass-fed and grass-finished meat, do you think, and in some parts of the world, like in UAE, there's, there isn't any information whether the meat is grass-fed or grass-finished. We look, don't have any farms, so most of the things are imported because it's a desert here. What's your take on grass-fed and grass-finished versus just eating normal meat? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a question I answer and get asked often. And so what I can tell you is that, um, you know, grass-finished doesn't tell me as much about how the animal is raised, you know, as, as I'd like to know. There's a lot of sort of deception in labeling practices. You know, grass-finished could say that they had access to grass. They may have never went out there. They stayed inside the barn and ate, ate hay in the wintertime, and, and that may have been how they're finished. Uh, but what we know is that um, from an environmental standpoint, you know, the way you pasture the animals is going to have an impact on the environment. And so those ranchers that um, put their stock on grass and they rotate it appropriately every one or two days will improve the soil quality and improve the biodiversity. And so there's a tremendous potential for environmental gain you know, based on how the animal is, is, is uh, raised. Now, when it comes to nutrition i think that's where things are a little more uh less straight straightforward because there's people that will say that uh you know a cow is designed to eat grass and if he's not eating grass all the time uh, then they're going to be a sick animal and the sick animal is going to get bad meat and the bad meat's going to make you sick um unfortunately the data that we have and we don't have a lot of data yet but the data that we have doesn't seem to show any real difference in human outcomes for those that eat exclusively grass finished meat versus those that eat meat that's been fin finished in a feedlot with 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 some of it coming from grain um i've got data on about twelve thousand people i couldn't find a difference significantly on, in the overall outcomes um harvard university study who i just mentioned basically saw the same thing there was no real difference in outcomes um now there are individuals for sure that will say look i do better when i eat exclusively grass finished meat However, I've seen people say I do better when I eat grain-finished meat. So it's, it's it's hard for me to say honestly. I mean, I, what I would like to tell people is, yes, you should only eat grass-finished meat, and you should support ranchers that, that do that. Uh, that would be a nice message and one I would certainly get behind. But I, I don't have the data that, that, that can support that yet in health. I certainly have it from an environmental standpoint. We can afford to eat grass-finished meat, and you want to help the environment in a better way, then you should find not only a grass-finished farmer, but a regenerative rancher or someone that's using either holistic management or multi-paddock grazing, adaptive multi-paddock grazing, or, you know, um, you know these different terms that, that indicate that there's a, the Savory Incident has something called the uh, environmental uh, verification out of, of outcome, you know, sticker, so they can tell you that this, this beef has caused the environment to get better. So there's ways to do that. But if you cannot afford that, then eating the meat that you have available to you is also uh, better than eating the standard diet that's out there. You know, I'd rather you eat cheap meat from the from the grocery store in your local grocery store, even if it's finished in a feedlot, than eating the the highly processed food that's in the rest of the store. I think it's going to 
you know, a, a tremendous difference. And I've got literally thousands of people and, and all they can afford to do is eat the, you know, the cheap ground beef they can get in a local supermarket yeah. that is often coming from a feedlot and they do just fine. And so I, 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 you know, I would be remiss not to be aware of that. And, you know, I think unfortunately, because some people will say, well, I could never do a meat-based diet because it's so expensive because I've got to eat, because someone told me I had to eat grass-finished beef at, you know, $40 a kilo or, right, right. So, so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, truly it it can be expensive. Um, Now I think food, we, we probably undervalue and underpay for them. If we look at, the amount of money they used to pay for food relative to their income. It was something mm-hmm. like 30% of their income back, you know, turn of the 20th century. And now it's like five or 6%. So, um, you know, there's a point where you say, okay, maybe I don't need this new pair of tennis shoes. I'd rather spend more money on a better quality diet. Quality you know? nutrition, I think that's, yeah. Right. So that, that's a calculation everybody has for themselves. And I, you know, like I said, I would rather drive around in my old pickup truck and eat good meat then, you know, have a nice car and, and have a crappy, crappy diet and crappy health. Mm-hmm. What's your take on, because um, there are a lot of the times the beef meat is not available for in a lot of countries. Some traditions and cultures do not eat uh, beef as a part of their culture and traditions, but they do eat sheep and goat. So does it mm-hmm. matter what kind of meat, like let's say if someone's exclusively having beef versus someone's having like lamb or goat things like that um i you know and if, if you know particularly uh, we've got a lot of people that do this diet in india which would be one of those places where uh, yeah. you know beef is in large places prohibited due to religious uh, you know uh, reasons um lamb is, a, is an excellent source of nutrition it's, it's it's probably equally if not better than than beef quite honestly it's it's, it's a great source of nutrition i think i think goat can be an also a good one in general when i look at uh this is the experience of what i'm seeing in 2021 or i've seen for the last five years people tend to do better with what we call ruminant animals these are grazing animals um you know and i think it makes sense you know if we look at the way that human humans evolved hunting um you know if we only had a spear technology which we largely that was that was a technology of humans for you know the whole time we were homo erectus 1.8 million years whatever it was um we had a spear and we had big animals we had these big slow moving moving heavy uh, grazing animals called mega herbivores uh, things like mammoths, you know, elephants, and, and some of these other large, you know, woolly rhinoceros and and whatnot. And they didn't really run away. They weren't animals that ran from humans because humans were so small and they didn't perceive them as predators. But as we developed this technology, we were able to, you know, easily hunt these animals, and we had lots of meat and we had lots of energy. You know, uh, it's only in recent times. In recent times, it goes back to about fifty to eighty thousand years ago when those animals started to largely die off for various reasons. Uh, we started having to hunt these smaller animals, and then we had to develop, you know, range technology, bow and arrow, the atlatl, and you know, which was a which was a kind of a, a you know long, you know, extension of the arm, which you would you would yeah. throw projectiles, and uh, it's you know it's amazing how fast they could throw those something like a hundred miles an hour and go two hundred yards, and so you could you could hunt these smaller animals. The smaller animals um, provided less less quality nutrition and you know like i said if you think about like for instance chicken is a very popular 
meat in the worldwide. It's 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 largely in the United States. It's replaced beef significantly. I mean, the majority of uh, the meat cows in the United States comes from chicken now, whereas in the 1970s it was beef, and then beef has declined about 40 percent, and chicken's gone up something like six or seven hundred percent. But chicken, you know, if you think about it, if you were a, if you were a, a, you know a, a, an ancient human and you had a spear and you had to get all your food from chasing birds around with a spear, you would go hungry pretty quick. Mm-hmm. So I, I were kind of naturally, you know, just trained to, to eat these bigger animals. And so I think that's why so many people gravitate towards these large ruminant animals, whether they're cow or, you know, lamb or goat or, or uh, you know, elk, deer, bison, those types of things, which, you know, again, you just get more meat per, per, per amount of effort you have to, to do. And, uh, but yeah, but I mean, but the, to answer your question, you can do fine on lamb, you can do fine on goat, you can do fine on bison, you can do reasonably. I think I, I've seen people do reasonably well on pork and eggs and, and, and some of these other things, even even chicken to some degree. I, I do think for some, to getting some amount of red meat in the diet is, is, is often seems to be very important. Do you personally eat chicken? Um, not very often. I mean, I, I think in the last five, Five years I've had it twice and it's because I think we ran out of red meat at one <laughs> I was in France at, uh, I was in Fr- at France at a party and we had a bunch of lamb and beef and you know we ran out and I was still hungry and they had uh, uh, they had some chicken so I ended up eating that I think that was the last time I had any but uh, it's been a while yeah for me as well I prefer to have more of lamb or beef or anything else even organ meats I've been eating organ meats almost every day now And this is another question that I wanted to ask you. Everyone's talking about the benefits of organ meats, and I've seen some really good data on how nutrient-rich organ meats can be. But do you think it's something that you can eat like quite often, let's say three to four times a week or more? Yeah, I mean, clearly organ meats have a lot of their, their vitamins. I mean, they're, they're packed with nutrition. They, they have some nutrients, you know, vitamin A, vitamin C. Uh, they're high in iron, uh, they're high in protein, uh, and depending on, you know, some of them, you know, each organ has a little bit of different nutrient profile. So they're definitely uh, beneficial to eat. Um, you can eat them. I think you can eat them every day, three times a week if you want. Where I will push back is I don't know that you have to eat them to be healthy. I, I You know, I think there's people out there that, that will say that, well, the only way you can be successful on a carnivore diet is to regularly eat organ meats. And unfortunately, it's got too many counterexamples of that not being true. I've seen literally thousands of people thriving, you know, reversing their diabetes, coming on vacations, and thriving for years. And it's not just for, you know, a month or two. It's, it's six years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years without including the organ meat. So I don't think they're necessary. I do think, you know, you know, particularly in the beginning, you know, we have a lot of people that come into Uh, they may even be obese, but they're nutrient they're nutrient deficient. You know, they've got these nutrient deficiencies that come from just eating basically junk food, which is, you know, kind of it's got plenty of any nutrition or any significant nutrition, and so they may be nutrient depleted a little bit. And so in the beginning, they may crave and eat organ meats, and they and they do that, um, and, and it helps them. And then after a time, they're like, okay, I don't really need to do that anymore. Maybe during times of stress, there may be some other examples where someone, you know, has had an illness or they're under a lot 
a lot of stress and they may find their nutritional requirements go up a little bit. And so those may be times to uh, to include those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really find there's a problem with eating them. But I, like I said, the only thing I push back is, is when people say you must include them. You know, quite frankly, I, re- I rarely eat organ meats. I mean, I, I don't think the last year or two. Um, and I do this fine. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That definitely clears a lot of confusion out. And you mentioned about vitamins and things. So let's go on to the topic. We know that humans cannot make vitamin C. And vitamin C is essential for so many other things like collagen synthesis, forming carnitine. And in the past two years, everyone knows vitamin C for its antioxidant effects, you know, modulating the immune system. And I guess by now, 70% of the world wakes up in the morning to drink a packaged source of orange juice, which is high in vitamin C, or probably people who are um, a bit more fancier, they might be squeezing fresh orange juice out in their fancy machines. But then I have never heard someone say, oh, I'm going to have my meat and that's going to fill up my vitamin C. And probably many people who are listening to this right now have put down their orange juices. So tell us, how does eating an all-meat diet can kind of like fill up the gaps on some of those essential vitamins that we need? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question because if you if you look at like say a diet that is you know you can certainly um, look at the these recommended daily allowances for vitamins and minerals and you can take a um, a meat an animal based diet I'll say and you can you can fill in those holes you can say well if 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 I eat meat and I include a little bit of dairy and I include some seafood and I include certain organ meats to a certain concentration I can hit 100% of the RDA requirements I can make that happen. Um, but if you're going to say, I'm just going to eat, you know, steak and eggs, you're going to have some holes. You're going to see deficiencies and things like folate. Uh, you're going to see things like manganese being low. You're going to see things like, uh, uh, certainly vitamin C, uh, you're going to struggle to hit those RDAs. Now the question is, do those RDAs even apply to the same degree that they would to someone else that's eating a, say a standard Western diet of 60% carbohydrates? And a significant percentage of that coming from grains. Um, I think there's pretty good evidence to show that they don't necessarily apply. Let's go back to vitamin C specifically. So vitamin C, you know, the RDA for vitamin C, I think is something like 50 or 60 milligrams per day. Some people recommend higher, even 100 milligrams. Meat does not provide anywhere near that. You know, a pound of meat will have about 10 milligrams of vitamin C. Um, organ meats, you know, like I said, if you eat a lot of, uh, say, uh, thymus and pancreas uh you can get, get you can get some more vitamin c to meet those requirements um but one thing we know with vitamin c is that um vitamin c is vitamin c is not too dissimilar to glucose in fact they they share the same transporter um falling across a number of different cell membranes across the mitochondrial membrane across the gut barrier and so when, when glucose is 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 high vitamin C is kind of it's competing, so vitamin C tends to not transfer. transfer. So that's one thing that's potentially going on. We also know that vitamin C, one of the roles of vitamin C is to serve as an antioxidant. That's what it's most known for as an antioxidant. And what we know is on low carbs are natural. You know, we are, are we make our own endogenous antioxidants. There's several of them in the body uh, that we that we produce, and those antioxidants 
when you're in a lower carb diet, those things are upregulated. So, for instance, one of them, uric acid, was particularly associated with gout, uh, but uric acid is an antioxidant. And at the same time, humans lost the ability to vitamin C, they lost something called uricase, which breaks down uric acid. And so that may have been one of the trade offs that we could you know, decrease the need for vitamin C by producing more uric acid. The other thing we know is that the human red blood cell is capable of recycling vitamin C. So when we, you know, maybe we don't need quite as much. And the other thing, and probably one of the more important aspects is uh, the, the role of vitamin C in carnitine. Carnitine is something that helps to, to uh, helps with fat oxidation. It's, it provides a, a shuttle that brings uh, the, the fats into the mitochondria, or transports it through the mitochondria so that uh, fat can be oxidized as energy. And carnitine is produced by the body, you know, in association with vitamin C, but you can directly consume carnitine. In fact, it's the only place you consume it is getting it through meat. And so when you're eating a lot of carnitine, you you're automatically have higher levels. You don't need as much vitamin C. So I think I think the requirements for vitamin C on a meat based likely, and I say likely because I don't know for sure, but likely seem to be less. And in fact, um, you know, vitamin C deficiency is, as far as I'm concerned, on this, on this carbo diet has is, is not been shown. I mean, we, we, we've basically not seen anybody with signs of vitamin C deficiency, which, you know, classically are called scurvy. I've just not seen anybody with clinically verified signs of scurvy. Now, there's some people that say, oh, I've had some sore gums occasionally, but there's a lot of other potential reasons for that. But that, that, that's still by far the minority. Um, but back to the, the, the REAs in general, you know, we know things like, like for instance, zinc has got a, a, you know, an RDA requirement. But if you, you eat zinc and you're eating something called phytic acid or phytates, and phyt phytic acid or phytates are found in grains and uh, legumes and beans and things like that. If you eat a thousand milligrams, or one gram of phytic acid, your zinc requirement doubles. And if you eat two grams, your zinc requirement doubles. So we're seeing, you know, just these differences in your vitamins when you are not, you know, when you're consuming carbohydrates or grains or, or plant foods versus when you're not. And so, in fact, uh, we know that, for instance, magnesium, which so many people are deficient in, there's some estimates that something like two thirds of the population is magnesium deficient. Magnesium, one the roles of magnesium and cofactor for carbohydrate metabolism. And so it's postulated that eating a high carbohydrate diet is chewing up all your magnesium, and and therefore um, you make more magnesium on a on a uh, carbohydrate based diet than you would on a diet that doesn't include carbohydrates. So there's a lot of thoughts on these vitamins. At the end of the day, I mean, I should be um, having medical symptoms from you know, vitamin C deficiency and folate deficiency and all these other things. And yet I'm, you know, literally breaking world records as an athlete and, you know, doing things that the average person in their 50s is just unable to do. So I'm unhealthy due to nutritional uh, uh, deficiencies. And I, I think we have to look at how we define those things because most people would argue, you know, I don't look like someone who's nutrient deprived. <laughs> Definitely not, and especially with when someone sees your workouts and the kind of things you do out there, definitely not nutrition deprived. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. I found that zinc piece to be very valuable because that is a significant loss of zinc or like a doubling up 
in the amount of zinc that you have to consume. And most of the people that I know uh, will have a lot of phytic acid just because they don't know what phytic acid is to begin with and oxalates and things like that. Now, let's move on. One of the other biggest challenges that people in my part of the world are facing is high cholesterol. And this can be determined by various diet factors, lifestyle choices, up to a point you can have certain genetic predisposition. But everyone is worried about cholesterol and about 90% of them, give or take, don't really know what cholesterol is, what's its function in the body. And probably, you know, when they talk to their doctor or nutritionist, maybe even personal trainers, they have made sure that people understand that red meat will significantly increase their cholesterol levels. So what's really going on? What's the deal with this whole cholesterol thing and red meat? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly I think the cholesterol topic is a, is a, is a you know, it's not a black and white, straightforward topic. And so uh, as we know, cholesterol has a role in its body. We don't have cholesterol. Cholesterol is not there to kill us. I mean, we cholesterol is part of every single cell membrane in our body. It's a precursor for many of our hormones, including vitamin D, estrogen, and estrogen, progesterone. Uh, you know, it's a part of the central nervous system. You know, it, our brain uses something like uh, 25% of the cholesterol in the body is dedicated to brain utilization. Uh, so cholesterol is incredibly important. Our liver makes cholesterol. I think 80% of our cholesterol is uh, liver. Um, diets that are high in fat or higher meats can increase cholesterol. Uh, I've certainly seen that uh, in many people. Um, but we have to realize that when we're concerned about cholesterol, when we're looking at um, cardiovascular risk, we have to realize that uh, the, the thoughts of good cholesterol being HDL and bad cholesterol being LDL are very antiquated. These are very old concepts. There's been a lot more research and understanding around these topics now. And so I think what we're seeing is there's a lot more nuance to that. And so the question should be, if your cholesterol is high, you should not ignore that. You shouldn't say, okay, well, let's do, I'm on a low carbohydrate and I'm fine. That, that shouldn't be the way you look at it. But you, what it should do is you should, you should just get more information. So what, you, what information would you want to have? Well, you want to know something about the nature of that cholesterol. What do the, the particles look like? Are they small particles? Are they large particles? Small particles tend to be more atherogenic than the large particles do. It doesn't mean that the large particles can't cause any atherosclerotic or can't contribute to that, but they're less likely to do so small ones. Oxidation of the, of the, of the, of the cholesterol has a huge role. We're seeing some new studies coming out showing that oxidized LDL has something like 100 times the, the potency for causing atherosclerotic damage and non-oxidized. And what's causing oxidation? Well, some people think it has to do with uh, uh, inflammation uh, you know, in the body. It has to do with perhaps uh, maybe some of the oils we ingest, these seed oils like soybean oil and canola oil and cottonseed oil and corn oil and so forth. Some people uh, think glyce glycemic control or whether we're or not, or diabetic or not, or pre-diabetic has a role in impacting the uh, uh, the cholesterol. Um, so, you know, we want to know the nature of the cholesterol. We want to know the relationship with the other lipid markers. We want to know what's going on with the triglycerides and the HDL. Uh, and, and besides that, you know, there's a there's a test called the LPIR score, the lipoprotein insulin resistance score, which has been shown to be something like 800% more uh, 
it, it contributes almost 800% more towards cardiovascular disease than does straight up LDL cholesterol. So there's more things you should know. And if you're over a certain age, you can start to look at the vessels themselves. So if you're over age 40, uh, many cardiologists will suggest something called a coronary artery calcium scan, which can show you if the, the vessels in your heart have shown some damage already. I had mine done, you know, a couple of years after doing the cover diet. Mine was a perfect zero. No evidence of any cardiovascular uh, issues whatsoever. And, you know, even today, I mean, I would you know, just argue based on my performance athletically, my heart is still functioning extremely well, you know, even at my age of 55. Um, so that's uh, one thing to be concerned about. Uh, yeah, I think when we look at cardiovascular disease, so we know there are a lot of things that contribute to it. Obesity is a huge contributor, particularly if it's central obesity, when you've got belly fat or visceral fat. We know that being diabetic has a huge, huge, probably the number one factor that leads to heart disease. We know that um, uh, chronic inflammation leads to that. We know that other other factors such as age, sex, you know, genetics, smoking history, all those things other than smoking you can't change. Um, and so you have to look at the whole picture. And I think it's you know not something you should, should ignore, but you should get a comprehensive look at everything else. And so if you go on a say a carnivore or a meat based diet, and you're obese and you're diabetic, and all of a sudden you are no longer obese you've lost your belly fat, you've lost your visceral fat, your inflammation goes away, your blood pressure normalizes, and your diabetes goes away, I don't care what your cholesterol has done. You know, generally, you have greatly diminished your likelihood of developing cardiac And so you have to realize that, you know, some things are going to go up, some things are going to go down, but it's the overall picture we want to be, we want to be familiar with and be cognizant about. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, and, and the research is still out there and, and will be coming in. There's this phenomenon of what people call this lean mass hyper responder. And so what we do is we see a sub, subset of the population. They're very lean. They're very, very often very muscular. Uh, they have very low triglycerides. They have very low, uh, uh, or they have very high HDL, but they also have high LDL. And sometimes very high, you know, 300 milligrams per deciliter high. and it would appear that those people are not developing heart disease. Um, there's some anecdotal evidence to show that, but there's a study that is being done on that that hopefully will be published next year or two that'll give people more, uh, at least more confident in that category. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think the doctor is going, going to next week or even one study is gonna suddenly start saying, well, you don't need to worry about your cholesterol anymore. But you as a patient, need to take care of your own, you know, you need to, you need to invest in your own health and understand what's going on and, and learn more of this because quite, quite frankly, I don't know what the situation is in Dubai, but I can tell you in the United States, uh, many uh, uh, physicians just don't have time to delve into all these nuances. They're just too busy and they don't have, and the system doesn't necessarily allow for, you know, a dissenting opinion or even, you know, if, if you don't fit the mold, then Sorry, you're gonna, you're gonna, we're gonna make you fit them all regardless. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And I was pretty concerned about some of my LDL levels when I was on a ketogenic diet, and when I was, this was in the initial phase of my ketogenic diet, and I did some blood markers, and I saw that my LDL rate—I don't remember the numbers right now—but it raised quite a bit. And at that point, I was thinking, I was correlating it with all the butter and 
you know, the ghee and MCT oils and things like that, that I was having on the ketogenic diet. Now, if someone isn't obese and someone is as athletic as you, do you, do you eat a lot of fat on the carnivore diet? Or are you sticking to just normal fat that comes with the animal? Are you having fatty cuts of meat or are you having like a, you know, some butter on top, things like that? Yeah, I don't, I don't go out of my way to eat, you know, ketogenic macronutrient ratios. I don't try and just gorge on fat. I mean, some people, I mean, I know that, I think that was one of the ketogenic diet is people were, um, you know, so obsessed with being in ketosis that they preferentially ate fat of all other macronutrients and, and, and often to the detriment of, I think, something important, which is protein. I think people undervalue protein and under eat protein. And so what I think is, you know, uh, meat as it comes on an animal, fat and protein ratio is generally pretty well aligned with, with probably what our nutritional needs are. And, and so, uh, you know, while my diet is still relatively high in fat compared to, you know, carbohydrate-based diet, it is not necessarily a ketogenic macronutrient ratios. I'm not going out of my way to eat giant slabs of butter. I mean, every, you know, once in a while I'll do that. But I mean, I find for me, I mean, really, I think, you know, I think Aside from what you're eating macronutrient wise, you know, you have to look at yourself in the mirror. And if you're if you're walking around with excess body fat, then you're probably eating too many calories or too much fat. Um, and uh, if you are lean, then you're probably in a place you want to be. And so I find for me, what works is not to eat a low fat diet because that's miserable. I mean, that's just that's just asking for um, tremendous hunger, discomfort and perhaps hormone issues. So I eat probably a moderate fat diet, moderate, you know, and probably relative protein diet. Um, and, and so, for instance, I am approximately, you know, 250 or 100 and what is it, 113 kilos, um, six foot five, a pretty big person. And I'll routinely eat 300 grams of eating as much as 400 grams of protein a day. You know, that's a lot of food. And with that, I'll probably eat you know, 150, maybe on, maybe on some days, 200 grams of fat. Um, and that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty typical for me. Um, and that me relatively lean. Um, if I want to get really, really lean, which I sometimes do, um, then I'll, I'll go even leaner and I'll do that for periods of time. But every, every three or four days, I'll cycle in some fat. I just find that I have to have at least a certain amount of fat in my diet to keep me, you know, feel like I'm starving and that's no fun. Yeah. yeah, fat is has got that satiating factor, especially every time that I've been trying to get lean and I add some fat in, I definitely the hunger hormones do turn off. And I'd like to quote something from your book which would help people get a bit more clear. In your book, you mention some arbitrary numbers where you say that if you're, you know, if the numbers go like if your risk of heart disease goes up a 20% if your LDL is, which is uh, the cholesterol that we just mentioned, goes higher than 130. But it also goes down 150% if your insulin is lower than 3. And heart disease goes down another 85% if your waist is smaller than your height. And then it goes down even 120% if your C-reactive protein, which is also a marker of inflammation, goes lower than 1. So just so people who are listening to this can kind of imagine that cholesterol is not the end-all, be-all, 
And there are things that Sean mentioned, which are equally as important as, um, you know, being having a lot of cholesterol rather. And one of the other things people also are concerned, especially I was concerned when I was starting out the carnivore diet, was about fiber. And most people would think about, especially if they're not in the health and wellness space, they would think about pooping when it comes to fiber. But fiber is also linked to trillions of gut microbiomes. And in the last 10 years, we've been seeing tremendous amount of research that eating more fiber increases a good bacteria and maintains a healthy colon. And there are some health articles online which even say that you have to poop about three times per day. So what's your take on that? Where does all that come from? Uh, well, I mean, I think the, the, the sort of belief and the beneficial effects of fiber, and I think there are some, and I think it's context dependent, but I think, you know, you go to Dennis Burke, a physician who traveled after the early part of the 20th century observing the lack of chronic disease among Africans. He attributed that to their high fiber consumption. Um, you know, there were other factors there. In fact, they, you know, they, they weren't eating added sugar and things like that. And so some people say, well, it's just because they weren't eating sugar. And I think what fiber does, if you're eating, so a couple of things, if you're eating a fiber-based diet, at least in Western society, and this is where most of this data comes from. So you look at the average American that's eating high fiber, it's usually, they're usually getting that from, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables. That often is a proxy marker for, for wealth. You know, the wealth Wealthy people can afford to eat the fresh fruits and vegetables. And guess what happens to wealthy people? Wealthy people tend to have better lifestyles. They have more access to health care. They tend to exercise, have the time to exercise. And so all these things are associated with, uh, with wealth. Now, um, fiber is certainly not essential. I mean, I've literally not eaten any fiber in about five years, and I'm not dead. So it can't, how could it be essential if I'm still living and doing that? And, you know, there are, Many people that fast for period of times, where's their fiber coming from? Did their gut biome die suddenly because they're fasting? Most people promote fasting as being healthy. So, you know, you I don't buy the argument about the microbiome. Um, there is, uh, you know, you know, we'll look at the benefits of fiber. I think fiber, um, it certainly can cause satiation. So if you eat a big, bulky, giant salad, it may fill you up. Your gut gets to stand it. You're not so hungry, so that's great. So you you don't eat, you don't binge on chocolates and cakes and cookies and junk food. So there's a benefit in that regard. Um, there has been some studies that suggest a slight decrease in crawl, which again we just talked about, mm-hmm. is necessarily a good or a bad thing. I just say the the the, the um, I think it's still a question mark in my mind. Um, uh, there's other benefits of fiber are things like glycemic uh, response. So if you eat an apple, your blood glucose is going to go up less than if you eat apple juice. You know, if you have the same grams of same number of grams of carbohydrates in apple juice versus an apple, the fiber is going to blunt that response. So you have less of a glycemic swing, which many people think is a good thing. So there are some benefits to including fiber in the diet in context. So in context of a standard junk food diet, the more fiber you eat, probably going to be healthy. Now, when we're looking at a meat-based diet where there are no simple sugars or, you know, uh, you know, high refined carbohydrates, you know, some of those benefits, they're not even, they're not going to be there. Um, you know, when we talk about the gut and so the latest thing, you know, that we talk about the gut is, well, the microbiome feeds on fiber and produces short chain fatty acids such as butyrate, 
which seem to have a protective effect, effect on the colon or the cells lining the colon called the colonocytes. And there certainly is some truth to that or maybe some truth to that, but those short-chain fatty acids can be produced by the um, digestion or the breakdown of proteins. We see things like um, propionic acid, acetic acid, methyl uh, butyric acid uh, made by protein uh, um, fermentation or protein putrefaction. Um, and then also when we're on a low carb uh, carbohydrate diet, you know, we often produce something called ketone bodies. And one of those is called beta-hydroxybutyrate, which sounds very much like butyrate. And it is, it's just an, a hydroxyl molecule or an OH molecule different. And it, that OH molecule can come on and off very easily. So it's a re reversal reaction. And so that the benefit of butyrate to the colonocytes is because it's converted in beta-hydroxybutyrate anyway. And that's where the benefit's coming from. So if you're on a ketogenic diet or, or a low-carb diet or a carnivore diet, you're producing this butyrate anyway through, through the liver. Um, and so you get those benefits regardless. The other thing I would point out is for those people that say that you must these, you know, these short-chain fatty acids coming from, from the, from the uh, uh, fiber in the colon to have a healthy body right a healthy in general well there's people that don't have colons i mean in fact humans are one of the few creatures that can live without our, without our colon and you know there's people who have had their colon removed for different reasons whether it's uh inflammatory bowel disease or cancer and very often those people will live a long healthy expectancy without any of that microbiome so again it's 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 one of those things where um there's a lot of data that, that sort of points away from that being the, the, the true answer. Also, we've seen uh, microbiome studies on meat eaters like the Inuit who've had their microbiome analyzed, and they see, see that the diversity of their microbiome is just as diverse as anyone else's. And so again, these are myths about you need plant material to have a diverse microbiome. It doesn't seem to hold up when you actually look at it in, in meat-based diets. And I've seen the microbiome on people that have been on meat-based diets. In fact, there's one fellow who was a sufferer of ulcerative colitis, and his diversity when he first started the diet was in the bottom 5%. And then he went on a carnivore diet, and then within about six months, it kept going up, up, up until he was up into the 97th percentile for wow. diversity. So, so anyway, I think, um, you know, I think the fiber um, argument is, one, probably not applicable. Or, you know, the context is, is not the same when it's not a standard American diet versus a carnivore diet. And two, I think that, um, you know, when we look at what we're eliminating, you know, you, you mentioned this before, is it eliminating the junk food or is it the meat itself? And I think it's both. So I think when you're eliminating all that junk food, maybe you don't need the fiber to displace it. So I think, you know, what I like to say is foods that displace, you know, processed junk food from the diet are good things foods that displace displace meat from the diet are not as good you know and so i think you know I, my hierarchy is eat as much meat as you can and then if you got some room left over eat some fruit you know if you like vegetables eat some vegetables and i think it'd be pretty good and don't eat any but junk food and you'll be fine with with the with the level of satiation that comes from protein i think if you eat all the meat that you can then there is hardly any room left for any vegetables and i like what you mentioned before that People are obsessed about getting their fat intake in, but they are ignoring the protein. And many people won't meet their protein needs for the day for probably three major reasons. 
One is probably they're vegan or vegetarian. Second, it could be expensive. Or third, people might think that they might damage their kidney health. And about 10 years ago, when I was bodybuilding as a hobby, I would go out with my friends and order the classic chicken breast almost all the time. And many of my friends also showed me this concern about kidney health. Now, we know that on the carnivore diet, you're having a lot of protein. How does this affect your kidneys? Yeah, that's another uh, misconception. So um, the belief that protein harms the kidneys goes back to, I think, about the 1980s. Uh, there was a, there was a uh, doctor, Dr. Brenner, who was doing studies on uh, lab animals, I think mice and rats specifically. And he saw that high-protein diets in mouse models did and was indeed associated with damage to the, to, the, to the kidney itself or the units of the kidney. And so they extrapolated that to humans. The problem is the human data doesn't seem to support that. In fact, uh, 2018, uh, Professor Stuart Phillips, who is one of the leading protein researchers in the world, published a nice meta-analysis of all the data on high-protein diets and kidney function. And so they saw no evidence of damage to the kidneys um, from protein. In fact, and in fact, just this year, a few months ago, uh, David Unwin, who's a who's a who's a physician in uh, in Great Britain, uh, in in England, um, published a, a study of of several of his patients that he's had on high protein diets, low carbohydrate diets, with chronic renal disease, and he showed actually a reversal of disease by going on a high protein diet. And so, the misconception is that um, when you have kidney failure, your your protein in the blood or into the urine, rather. It's not that the protein is damaging the kidney. It's just that protein is associated with kidney failure. So people seem to think, well, if I don't eat protein, I won't have it in my urine, and therefore my kidneys don't look like they're being damaged. But that's not you know, really what's happened. The, the, the kidneys are being damaged by diabetes from too much excess glucose in the blood. Uh, some of these, again, these refined carbohydrates, these uh, refined seed oils seem to be damaging. And there's other studies that show replacing uh, refined carbohydrates and, and polyunsaturated fatty acids with protein um, improve kidney function. Uh, one of the thoughts is that, you know, well, more protein stresses the kidneys and the kidneys respond by getting bigger. And, and there's truth to that. But it's just like when your muscles are being stressed, um, your muscles get bigger. Is that, is that, mm-hmm. th- did the muscles get sick because they got bigger? No, in fact, uh, if you look at populations like Inuit, they had much larger kidneys than other people because they had a lot of protein. They, their kidneys weren't damaged by any way. Uh, when a woman gets pregnant, her kidneys will get bigger because her their her blood flow increases because her they, she needs to produce more blood for her you know growing baby, and so her kidneys enlarge. That's not damaging the kidneys. If you take out someone's kidney as for a kidney donation, the other kidney will grow to to compensate for the increased blood flow that it has to deal with. And so uh, this thought that stressing the kidney and causing it to grow is bad for it is, is not really grounded in anything that's uh, uh, credible. In fact, if you talk to most nephrologists uh, or many nephrologists, understand that protein does not damage kidneys. Thank you for clearing that out. I think a lot of people are going to find a lot of value from this because one of the concerns, especially in this part of the world, is with this misconception that protein damages kidney. Now, Sean, I could go on talking to you forever, man, but in the 
I know I respect your time and I know you're in the middle of moving houses. So we will be ending this podcast soon. But my last question to you is, if you had a time machine and if you could go back to your younger self, knowing all that you know right now, and if you could give yourself one piece of advice, what would that be? And this doesn't have to be about health, nutrition, buying a Bitcoin or something like that. It could be about anything, right? So what would that yeah, be? Well, I mean, you know? Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously going on Bitcoin when it was two cents would have been, would have been a wise thing, I think. Yeah. Probably. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I, I mean, honestly, it's tough because I don't know if I would have listened to myself. You know, you know, you know, when I was, when I was, 22 or 25 i was pretty set in my ways and you know no one's going to convince me anything so i don't know it would have been any good even if i could say hey i'm here for the future maybe i would have listened maybe i wouldn't have but i mean i think you know i think being more open to questioning things you know instead of just you know when i was in my 20s uh and 30s i mean you know going through medical training i mean it, it was just learn as much as you can and don't question things. Just absorb, 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 and repeat whatever you've been taught. Unfortunately, a lot of what we learn, what we're taught, is it ultimately ends up being inaccurate. So you should maybe learn to be a critical thinker and to evaluate things in a way that you know makes sense to you, other than just accepting everything at face value. Because um, you know, like I said, a lot of the things I held as beliefs have turned out to be you know either inaccurate or just completely opposite of what ultimately happens and so i think you know you should uh um you know whatever you're you're looking at look for verifiable results and i think i think health is a very easy one to look at i think it's pretty easy to see um you know look in the mirror and, and see if you're getting what you're you really want to be getting out you're doing you know because you can you know buy supplements and you can listen to what you know your physician and if you're not getting the results you then you need to question question the advice and maybe take a different route. don't be afraid to change gears and take a different route amazing thank you so much for that thank you so much for all the work that you've been doing all the research that you've provided to the world your book is fantastic your podcast everything thank you so much for all the work you've been doing i appreciate your time and your effort and thanks for coming in today and talking to the audience well, thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Your guy, your folks will find it useful. And I guess most people listening will be in Dubai, I assume. Or I don't know. Yes, they are mostly in Dubai and in the sub-Indian continent. We have some people from Turkey coming in, mostly people from India and UAE. And uh, yeah, that's, they'll find this very valuable. And thanks again. And this is me, CJ, signing off from the Shift with CJ podcast. Everyone who's listening, have an energetic day, a week a lifetime ahead of you. Your time and presence with us through this podcast is highly appreciated. If you want to learn more, then head over to our website, www.shiftwithcj.com.